Apple Presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, David Fear, Senior Editor at RollingStone.com. Hi, thank you so much for coming here. Uh, I don't want to belabor the introduction because we're going to show you a trailer in a second. I will say this. There are, there are few things more wonderful, as far as I'm concerned, than, than going into a movie cold and walking out feeling like you've just seen something absolutely amazing. I think the only thing that's better than that is when a movie gets incredibly hyped and then you see it and it lives up to the hype. And that's what you guys are getting today. Uh, we're going to go ahead and roll you the trailer for me and Earl and the Dying Girl, and we're going to bring out the talent. I have no idea how to tell this story. I don't even know how to start it. This is the story of my senior year of high school and how it destroyed my life. Your father and I want to talk to you about something sad. Rachel Kushner has been diagnosed with leukemia. That sucks. It sucks. It sucks quite a bit. You might be someone who could make Rachel feel better. I don't need your stupid pity. I'm not here because I pity you. I'm actually here because my mom is making me. <laughs> it's actually worse. Everyone was going to find out sooner or later. One thing you can do if you don't want to talk to anyone is just enter a subhuman state. Pretend you're someone annoying. Oh, hi, Rachel. I'm really sorry you have cancer. <laughs> exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> so if this was a touching romantic story, our eyes would meet and suddenly we would be furiously making out with the fire of a thousand suns. But this isn't a touching romantic story. Anyway. Yep. Who is this little friend? Earl's just my co-worker. I've known him since kindergarten. What you got, cat? Wanna fight? Didn't think so, punk-ass cat. So you and Greg are co-workers? Nah, we friends. Dude's terrified of calling somebody his friend. Dude's got issues. But how are you co-workers? We make films. Movies? They're terrible. Greg, you never told me. The idea behind each one was, we took a film that we liked, and we made the title stupider, and then made a new film to reflect the new title. It's a formula that only produces horrible films, but for some reason we keep using it. You need to make a film for Rachel. Hi, Rachel. I don't really know you, but I believe in you. I know you're Jewish, but God has a plan for you. Out of all the people in the school, I don't hate you. Damn. You guys were making a movie for me. We tried a bunch of stuff, and it's not that good. Now is not the time for your, I'm Greg, I suck, nothing I do is any good thing. We agreed to do a film that we have no idea what it should look like, or even be. What was I thinking? I'm so tired of you treating this girl like she a burden. Because somebody actually cares about you, her life is over after this. Life can keep unfolding itself to you just as long as you pay attention to it. It was the best of times. <laughs> Worst of times. It's so much harder than I thought it would. It was life. Please help me welcome to the stage the actress Molly Shannon, the actor Thomas Mann, and the filmmaker Alfonso Gomez Reon. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about how Jesse Andrews' script came across your desk. I know this had been on the blacklist for a little while, right? Yes. Uh, well, no, not a little while. They had just made the blacklist, or right before I made the blacklist. And um, I forgot why I, I, I got it. It was submitted to me maybe just to be aware of him as a writer or because it was... Um, it, had, it hadn't made the blacklist yet because 
I had a friend, a really good friend of mine from NYU, that was working at the company that was that had um, financed the uh, that had optioned the book and the screenplay. And when I told him I, I got the script, I was so excited. Can I can I talk to you about it? He said, uh, "How did you get it? It was it had been leaked, um, and they weren't ready for that. And they had a whole series of a list of directors they wanted to go to first. Um, so eventually, he gave me some advice, and he said maybe you should put a, a visual presentation together um, because when I if, if I'm lucky enough to bring you into the office, it might help you get a leg up, and, and it didn't. It was very helpful, and so I had to wait a few months for other directors to come and meet on the project, and eventually I showed up with, a, with this mood reel, and that really helped me get the, get the job eventually. So let's talk a little bit about the casting. How did you find your Greg, your Rachel, your Earl, your dying girl? Um, it, was, uh, it was the process started it, over the course of like a year or eight months, because the movie was going to happen at one point, then didn't happen, then it came back together. And, uh, but Thomas and Olivia were always um, at the top of that list, and they, were, they auditioned very early on. <clears throat> Certainly Thomas did, and then Olivia, and then I cast Olivia first. Yeah. And then, um, and uh, I just loved everything about them, because I was after naturalism and realism in, in, in the style of acting, and, and they were able to do both comedy and drama so well, and it made it feel so easy and real. And, uh, and then Thomas, uh, because you know, I was really, <clears throat> I identified with that character so much that I was really had to trust him and go through all these uh, movements in the script and came back over and over again. At first, because at first when you start casting, uh, there's a lot of people you're, you're meeting with and so you, you read one or two scenes. Then by the end we're adding more scenes and more scenes. By the end he was reading 30 pages and I, I was almost off book at that point. And then he and Olivia had beautiful chemistry together that wasn't, um, romantic and that was key and then um, Earl was the very last person to get me cast the movie almost fell apart because we had no Earl and then RJ came in and submitted a tape at the very last minute and it was perfect and then the adults I was lucky that all my first choices accepted yeah it's a nice mixture of younger actors who you may or may not notice I know RJ hadn't done anything before right this is his first movie right and then these uh, character actors like Miss Shannon Nick Offerman Connie Britton uh, John Berthenall, they all came in. All these people you'd recognize from TV and the movies that are just absolutely wonderful in it. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you guys came up with the Greg that we see on screen. Because I imagine that was a much different Greg than what you read in the novel or what you would have read in the script. Uh, well, f <clears throat> maybe physically it's a, it's a bit, uh, bit of a departure. Um, I think there's a big, you can talk about this, a bit something about his, um, he was chubby, he was overweight, and there was a lot of jokes about the weight, and, uh, and I wasn't going to, going to focus on that in casting. Um, it was like a certain energy and a realism that I wanted, and, um, and, uh, and, and Thomas had that quality. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, I just, uh, I just saw so much of myself in Greg. It reminded me of the kind of person that I was in high school and the way that I might have dealt with a situation like this. You know, I, well, when you're young, you don't, uh, you know, Greg doesn't see it as a beautiful, poignant time in his life. It's really awkward and confusing and uncomfortable. So. Um, I just loved how funny it was. I loved that it was a, so, such a funny script tackling a very serious subject. And as an actor, that's like you get to do everything, you know. And it was an incredible challenge. And I, I hadn't had the chance to really go there emotionally. It's so rare that you find a role that lets you go to all those places. So I just knew that I had an incredible opportunity and wanted to, to make the most of it. So I, it was worth that whole grueling audition process. Um, but, but yeah, as, as far as Greg, I liked, you know, he was, he was smart, but he was also, the writing embraced the selfishness of teenagers, which you don't really see a lot of, you know, they're, 
he wasn't an awkward guy who was just really kind of picked on all the time. You know, he, he was very confident in some ways, confident enough to kind of be friendly with everyone, but kept everyone at an arm's length to protect his own feelings. And I know a lot of teenagers like that, and just that rang true to me. Yeah, it's interesting, too. He's the kind of character when you first meet him, you're like, oh, I know this guy. This is the school misfit. This is the school recluse. And the longer you, the more time you spend with him, the longer you get to know him, like, you realize he's really not that kind of guy at all. He keeps people at arm's length for, you know, for his own reasons. And I should yeah. add that the, that the character in the script is the character that Thomas portrays. Just physically, it was a bit of a departure, but I think emotionally, that was the... Um that was the, it's a very similar emotional kind of journey that he takes that I also identified with. I want to give people a little bit of the taste of the Thomas that we're talking about. Uh, can we roll the first clip? I saw that you had not even unwrapped your college directory. Mom, don't go through my stuff. We discussed it, and she gets to go through your stuff. Just have a look. It's fun. It's like a menu for your future. What are you in the mood for? Some Penn State? Some Pepperdine, Pomona, Princeton. I'm not getting into Princeton. He's not getting into Princeton. Um, so is that it? No, honey, it's not it. Your father and I want to talk to you about something kind of sad. What? What happened? Well, I just got off the phone with Denise Kushner, Rachel's mom. You know Denise? Mm, not really. You're friends with Rachel, though. Yeah, I mean, we're, like, acquainted. Okay. Rachel's been diagnosed with leukemia. They just found out. Your test was today. Ugh, tests. I've been there. Oh, God. Is that serious? They're doing all kinds of tests. They're doing everything they can. They just don't know. Man, that sucks. You're right. It sucks. It sucks really bad. It sucks quite a bit. Yeah. I, I should mention that the cat was supposed to be here tonight and couldn't make it. I think it's doing another show or a Q&A. Uh, if you see better feline acting in a movie this year, I'll eat my shoe. I'm telling you, that cat's amazing. Um, Molly, before we get to you, I, I just have to ask, there are sequences in this movie in which um, Thomas's character and Earl remake old movies and do it badly? Would that be a correct way of saying it? Do it uniquely? Yes, how's that? How's uniquely, that? That'll uniquely. work? Uniquely. I think it's made by two... Well, there's a montage that probably spans seven years. So they probably started making them nine, ten years old, and some at 17. And I think they get a little more sophisticated by the end. But, <clears throat> but there are going to be some films that are going to be made by two ten-year-olds, and it should reflect that. Sure, a sockwork orange, for example. Uh, that was probably 12 when they made that. Right, one. 458 cowboy instead of midnight cowboy. That's 16, 17 years old. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about filming those sequences? They're really wonderful. They're just Sir, so funny. Ed, Ed Burst and Nate Marsh deserve all the credit for those. And uh, and uh, so, by and large, the way that's ten, tended to work with I would come up with a list, although there are exceptions to this rule, come up with a list of the filmmakers I wanted to pay homage to, and then what um, and what films of those would... Some of them tied are tied like thematically to our movie. Some are not. Some are just juvenile. But some are tied to death. There are some ideas that, that what could be very visual and specific <clears throat> that would also reveal a lot of their own 
tastes, and also Nick Offerman, the, the person who was guiding them into this criterion right. journey, you know, and um, and uh, and then and then what what could they physically do as two teenagers? What you know, where the, their costumes have to come from their parents' closets. It all had to feel handmade by these two young boys, uh, and then. Um, and then, uh, you know, there were sock puppets. Those started to be created or stop motion that would continue to... Mainly, a lot of that happened through post-production. But then it, it, there was a list and there was a ways, uh, you know, what are going to be... What are going to star puppets? What are going to be uh, star the 10-year-old version of the kids? And what, would it be uh, acted by um, Thomas and, and RJ? Yeah. I mean, a lot of them, we... I think we did, like, five of them the first day of shooting. Because we didn't have... We had 24 days to shoot the movie. And so... I think, and a half. I think well, 23 and a half. Sorry. Um, so we, we just like knocked out five of them in a row the first day and, and uh, just kind of went around in a van and it felt like, I mean, I used to do that. I feel like a lot of kids, even, even kids that don't get into film later in life, you know, do that when, you know, especially now with YouTube, everyone's making videos all the time. So it just really took me back to that place. It was very guerrilla style and just kind of changing costumes in the van, driving around Pittsburgh, stealing shots. And it was a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite, part, favorite memories from the shoot. And you get a real crash course in basically like art house classics 101. Doing oh this, yeah, right? pretty much. Like that was my homework, just watching all. I mean, I, I was familiar with some of them, but you know, most of them are so obscure that I that was my homework, just watching all these films. And it was the yeah, I mean, Alfonso's love for cinema is very infectious, and he makes you want to learn about film and movies. And so that was that was easy. That was the fun part. Molly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that you met Alfonso in a yogurt shop. I did. Yes, we met at Twirl in Los Angeles. <laughs> we were both in the mood for twirl at the same time one day. Right? Yes. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, I don't remember uh, red, what... Uh, red Velvet? Red <laughs> Velvet? What did you get? I just get a sample. Oh. I have to watch so... my girlish figure. Um, <laughs> no, I was with my kids. And yeah, Alfonso came up to me and uh, he, he introduced himself and he said he was a fan of mine and he was with his sister. Uh -huh. And... Um, uh, he was just really sweet. And then I forget how much longer after that. Then, um, yeah. he, it was like months after. Yeah, I think it was a little more than that. Oh, but, was it? Yeah. So, yeah. In my, yeah. <laughs> then he wrote me a letter and um, sent me the script and asked me to be in the movie. So how would you describe your character? My character, Denise Kushner, is um, she's a divorcee and uh, she's going through a really tough time. You know, I talked to Jesse Andrews, the writer, a lot about it and I think he uh, would speak a lot about how he knew these women in his neighborhood growing up who were friends of um, his, they were friends with his mother and he just said they went through really tough things, real hardship. So I would ask him a lot about that and he just said they, they, could, they could get through so much stuff and he really admired how tough they were. So I just think she's, she's dealing with a lot. She's, her daughter's been diagnosed with leukemia. She's just trying to hold on and trying to do whatever she can do for her daughter. And she does anesthetize her feelings a little bit with Sauvignon Blanc when she gets home from work. She, she does seem to like to tipple quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> she does, yes. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how do you, how do you draw a balance between a character that could be very broad and comic, almost caricaturish on one hand, right. and yet could also be very sort of like, oh, well, like sorrowful and somber and solemn, and clearly that's not you know, what she fits in the story. How do you find that, that middle ground? Oh, that's a great question. I think, um, well, I really, I really look to Alfonso for that, because I, I, um, I just wanted to 
please you. And so you have such a silly, great sense of humor. But then I really would just, you know, listen to what Alfonso had to say. And if he wanted me to bring it down or bring it up, we tried it all different ways. But I felt very comfortable to be silly sometimes and then more serious. We just played around with it a lot, I would say. Yeah. But, it, but I, I really appreciate how you're so open. You have such a great sense of humor. So I felt very free comedically. But then I love, I always treat um, performances, uh, truthfully, I always try to come from a real emotional place, even when I'm doing comedy. You've said that this made you feel like a young actor again when you were making this movie. It did. It was being with Thomas and Olivia and RJ. It just reminded me of what I love about acting. And um, I've been in show business for a long time. And so I felt like they were just so excited about making movies and Alfonso too. And it just felt like it was one of the best experiences of my life. It felt really inspiring, like we were all doing it together. It's what I loved about, about what first got me into acting. It was the community of people putting on a show. That's, that's, that's all I ever wanted. I, I was never like interested in just self-serving stuff. I always wanted to be part of a group. And I liked how affectionate theater people were, like how they would like braid your hair and touch you. I liked all that. <laughs> I was like, this feels good. I didn't have a mom, so I, I liked them touching and hugging and like writing notes, and it was so loving. <laughs> it seems cruel to be talking about this performance and not show them a little bit of it. So let's roll the second clip. This is where you get to see what Molly does. This is Kushner. Denise, Greg. To you, I'm Denise, okay. Oh, okay, good. You're a real good kid, you know that? You really are, you just have a big heart. And you're, you're kind, nice. I really appreciate it. Hearted, delicious, yummy, yummy young boy. And you're so, so handsome. Oh, I'm not handsome, but thank you. And so modest. Mm. I guess I'm a modest mouse. <laughs> Greg, where do you come up with this stuff? Well, that's the name of a band, actually. Oh. Yeah. Rachel, I've got a modest little mouse here to see you. That's uh, so funny. Thank you, thanks. Uh, that was, yeah. Uh, I saw this movie at Sundance, and as I was watching it, I kept saying, God, this music is so striking. This is so wonderful. And it wasn't until the credits rolled that I realized you got Brian Eno to do the score for this. How did, how did this come about? How did you get well, Brian just, Eno? I just told Thomas, that is the very first Eno cue in the movie, and that, because that is Rachel's sound. It's the first time you hear her music. Before that, Nico Muley did the beautiful original score for the beginning high school sequence. And then, um, well, we started playing around with it. Uh, we used the big ship first in the hospital scene. And, and that was our last day of production. It was working so beautifully. And, and just, that just led to uh, exploring Eno all through editorial and listening to decades of his work and then it, <clears throat> trying it out. And it ended up being kind of a beautiful, timeless sound to the, to the movie that held it together and never felt it, never made it too, um, which is difficult with this kind of subject matter, making it too saccharine or melodramatic. It just kind of, 
uh, was really respectful of everyone's journey, the audience, and us, and, um, and it just worked. It just became the sound of the movie, so we made it her little narrative also, that was, she was listening to him. Originally in her bedroom scenes, I knew I didn't want pop music, so originally we had New Order's Ceremony and then The Police is So Lonely, something she was getting into kind of like a new wave or something. <clears throat> and we swapped those for Eno, and then it became her sound, and that's the first cue. And then uh, we were lucky enough to get the movie to him, and he, he, he um, responded to it and liked the way his music was being used, and then started giving me some... Um, uh, emailing me some some tracks from his vault that, that he hadn't released yet, and then by the end was writing original music for us. So it's a combination of of some of his uh, pre-recorded older stuff, and then um, and then brand new music for us. You know, you just brought up the word saccharine and melodramatic, and I know that there's a temptation for people to try and sum up this movie in one or two sentences, and somebody might respond by going, "Oh, that sounds very saccharine and, mel saccharine and melodramatic," and it's clearly not. Or somebody could also be like, well, no, it takes, it's actually a very self-aware film. And they're like, oh, so it's meta. And you're like, no, no, not really, no. Um, it's a really wonderful balance between the two. And I, I guess I'm wondering, how do, you, how do you strike that balance? How do you do it so that it doesn't become maudlin and that it doesn't become like, so ironic and so like, self-conscious that people can't get emotionally involved with it? Well... <clears throat> I didn't, uh, it starts with the script, and, and the script didn't have that. Um, and then the casting of actors that made it lifelike, that made it, uh, that, that were able to balance the, the, the sweet and the sour together, and, and the bitter and, and the funny and the sad, everything in a way that made it feel um, effortless. <clears throat> and, and, but there were always, you look at her, Molly's scene, there's so much going on within one scene, that her, what her eyes are saying, and then what she's trying, you know, her playfulness, and the little Mrs. Robinson, and it turns again on her. It's like a wonderful little masterclass. That's an actor that was able to do that was, was, was what the whole movie was hoping, trying to, um, to achieve. Um, and, and you hope that you pull it off, because you wanted, personally, an authentic experience. You know, what I wanted to get out of this movie, <clears throat> what I wanted to learn from this movie, what I wanted to go through this movie, you wanted to feel in a way that you didn't feel it was manipulated. That, 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 you know, um, and, and, that, and you could ruin that with the wrong sound. And sometimes it's just silence was the best way of achieving that, to be respectful of the audience, too. So we, we, that, well, the hope was to achieve that, and you'll have to decide if you see the movie if you felt like we didn't. There's a scene in the middle of this movie, it's, uh, I believe it's a single take, it's the two of them in a bedroom, and it's basically a conversation that I think it goes on for about a good seven, eight minutes that is just one of the most extraordinary things I've seen in a movie in ages. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's trusting the audience. There's not a lot of sound. It's just two actors carrying the scene, and it's them actually talking to each other and listening to each other. It has to carry it, um, and it just like sticks the landing so beautifully. Well, because of their performances, you. but yeah. Thank you. It's definitely the scene that I'm the most proud of, and it's so rare that a director trusts you enough to just let you live in a space for that long without cutting. It's rare that you get that opportunity. So thanks. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the look of the film? There are a lot of stylistic flourishes in here. I don't mean that in a bad way, obviously, uh -huh. but there's a lot of just, it feels like a very kind of energetic, very sort of fresh film. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, I, well, this is, yeah, it, this is a young filmmaker telling you a story about his last year's senior, as a senior, so. Um, and this is, so, so the camera can be a character, I think. And then this is a movie that where Greg, at the beginning of the movie, is very much in control uh, how he presents himself to the world. And, um, and over the course of the story, he'll lose that control and learn to pay attention. And the movie be starts out quite aggressive and very stylized. Um, 
and will slowly become still and quiet um, as he learns to take to pay attention to listen. Um, so that was kind of a broad strokes where we were Chung Un Chung shot the film, what we were after with the film. And, and um, again, very handmade, not unlike the short films. And I should say, I always go back to because I, I, I will always feel like a PA, so I would hate to take credit for other people's work. Some of those short films, a lot of them, some of them were scripted, some of them, were, uh, our producers will have an idea, uh, but we all contributed to that. I want to make that clear. Um, but uh, but again, the whole movie had to feel, have the spirit of those little short films. So it had to be. Um, you know, very, very handmade, and uh, but again, it was very stylized and controlling as he loses control and starts to learn um, um, from her, and and because of her, have the courage to show his true self, and then find his his own unique voice as a filmmaker by the end. Uh, so that was kind of the journey, and, and what were the rules that we try to stick to while making the movie? But that's a longish answer-ish. I'm going to show you the pivot scene, actually, about what you're talking about. This, to me, is the scene where the things start to kind of go out of control and, um, or seem less like a control and sort of go into where he's eventually going to go, to where he's at at the end of the movie. Uh, we've got one last clip for you. But no, for real. Can you make me a tulip? Oh my god, am I on set right now? Oh. Oh my hey. god. Ah, I can't take it. Action cut. <laughs> Madison, why are you here? Rachel said that I could find you here and your phone was going straight to voicemail. Probably because ain't no good service down there. But I, I had to get here because I had to let you know. So I was visiting Rachel and I was giving her a card and she was watching one of your secret movies. Oh my god, wait, did you see any of it? No, 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 she turned off immediately. It, it was good, it was good. You know, you're both Japanese and Earl beheaded you and but then she like turned it off. But I, I had a brainstorm, okay? I had an amazing brainstorm. I realized you need to make a film for Rachel. What do you think? It would be like her favorite thing in the entire world and it's like the most important thing you could do. You have to do it. Yeah, word. Word? Like, word, you'll do it? Word? Yep. Oh my god, awesome. Okay, well I can't wait to see it. Um, okay, I gotta go, but uh... That's a wrap. Rolling. So that that that, <laughs> that is a that's a key moment because he's gonna have to learn how to make a film for someone else, not just for himself. Actually, that's Catherine Hughes playing Madison and Bobby J. Thompson playing uh, Earl's older brother Derek. And the dog. Uh, Doopy, I forget his uh, the real dog's name. We're gonna concentrate on all the animal actors tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd heard that you after this showed at Sundance and was getting standing ovations left and right that you got a fan letter from Werner Herzog? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can only imagine what that's like, getting a fan letter from uh, him. It was actually, um, yeah, he, he was invited to a screening, and, and then I, I got an email from him, that he, and then he invited me over his house for coffee, and we spoke for a while. It was very surreal. Um, but he, I was nervous, because Thomas, uh, you know, does his Herzog impression a couple of times, and and we we there's a lot of we spoof a few of his films and talk about them, and he's a, he's a character in the film, 
so I was nervous, of course. It was he going to sue us now? What's going to happen? But he has a wonderful sense of humor and had a, and really liked the movie and um, loved how it celebrated movies. And, and we had like a two-hour coffee. It was great. It was surreal. Oh, my God. But it, there's nothing like seeing an inbox, your inbox, that says Werner Herzog. Oh, my God. <laughs> no subject. Blank. You know? No subject. How, how apropos. <laughs> Uh, I've got one last question for you before I turn this over to the audience. Um, I know that you've said that when you made this film, it felt like setting the reset button. Yeah. Because you'd been, you'd worked on American Horror Story, you'd yeah, worked yeah. on Glee, you know, you'd, you'd been doing stuff for a while. You had a film that had come out before this. Yeah. Uh, and you'd also said that this was a very, very personal film for you. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, um, <clears throat> my father had passed away about a year before uh, I read the script. And uh, so uh, I think instead of dealing with it and incorporating that loss and moving on, I, I kind of built a wall and I was in deep denial. Didn't want to feel, almost didn't want to talk about him, which is awful because the pain, you know, the pain associated with it. So I was just shooting, shooting, and I love, I love being on set. I love shooting. I love being really expressive. American Horror Story really allowed me to have fun and experiment. But I was drifting, I think, from the films I wanted to make. And this, when I read the script, which is this beautiful gift, I think, that Jesse wrote for me, I, I saw a way to take Greg's journey and then make a film that expressed my love and then, and then be able to uh, um, really have uh, believe in, in some sort of continuum where even the, which is a message of the film that if people aren't around anymore, their definition is that isn't or they're not as defined uh, they, uh, they're still very much, they can very much still be present. Uh, and their story can continue to unfold. You just have to pay attention. And I learned to believe that and to listen. And, and then my father is very much alive now. And in, 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 in I keep that dialogue and, uh, going and, and hearing the stories. And he just continues to unfold. So that's why this, it was a reset button. Because not only is it a reset for me as a, as a son and a man, you know, um, moving forward, um, but also it brought me back to... The, the kind of films that I wanted to make and 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 uh, and I think in some ways like Greg at the end I feel like I'm finding my voice and that the journey is just beginning so that's why it was re uh, special on so many levels we're gonna open this up to your questions uh, hi everybody the film looks great I can't wait to see it um, it seems like a, a central theme is how you know watching movies can be so cathartic and uh, you know, I know I, I personally, you know, have gotten through so many tough times by watching movies, and you know, like there's been countless nights where I didn't want to go out. I, I was like, Scott, you can't possibly party tonight. And then I watched your film, Thomas Project X, and I was able to go out and party. Oh. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and you know, and but on a serious oh, note, I was wondering if you guys could all share. Not so true. That's truth, though. I love that film. But if you guys could all personally share a story about maybe you know a time in your life where a specific film got you through a tough time, um, you know, whether it was a, a theme in that movie or just specifically you know maybe just a random day that you saw a given film that had nothing to do with what you were going through but the enjoyable experience kind of just got you through it um, I'll say uh, Breakfast Club when I was 12 and, and, and Anthony Michael Hall in that, in that wonderful there's one specific scene but in that film was, was the first time I saw myself represented on film and, and you know I was a Mexican kid from the border I had nothing to do with this guy in Chicago but uh, it but his pain and, and who he was and, uh, and his kind of the subgroup that he belonged to in, in high school, I, I, I felt a deep connection there. And this is the first time I heard someone kind of speaking the way, not that I spoke, that I want, but the, the way I thought, you know, and expressed himself so beautifully. And his performance is also the first time you see those high, school, it's, high schoolers being treated like adults and, and, and never 
spoken down to in, in, uh, in the naturalism of the, all those performances, especially his, was one that comes to mind, but many more. Um, I guess I, I've always been drawn to movies about outcasts um, and, you know, coming-of-age films were just always, I mean, it's still one of my favorite genres, but um, I'm trying to think of a specific time, but I, I mean, I was like, I was, uh, you know, a late bloomer, like I'm still, you know, I still look very young, and when I was 13, I looked like I was 10, you know, and I remember the, uh, Little Miss Sunshine came out, I think I was like 13 or 14, and um, I just remember really identifying with Paul Dano's performance because it's silent for most of the film, and, um, and, but he was doing so much, and just it was so inspiring, just as someone who was kind of just figuring out that they wanted to be an actor. It was right when I started doing theater and, and, um, and kind of figuring out who I was, and uh, his performance really spoke to me. And there's that scene where you know he finds out that he's colorblind and he just sort of loses it. And um, I was just really, really moved by that particular performance. But that movie in general was, uh, uh, I don't know, it was really, uh, it's, it stayed with me. And I had never seen a movie quite like that. That was still when like, like dramedies were new to me. I didn't really understand that genre yet. But uh, yeah, that was a big one for me. Um, gosh, I have so many. <clears throat> I would say um, uh, for big female performances, broadcast news and uh, terms of endearment, I remember just being like, wow, Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger and the way James L. Brooks wrote and directed and William Hurt and the ensemble and character-driven comedy. And um, I loved also Lassa Hallstrom's My Life as a Dog. That's great. And uh, this other movie called Ponette. It's a French film about a little girl who loses her mother and her mother comes back as an angel. Um, that was such a favorite movie of mine, and Martin Scorsese's *The King of Comedy*. Oh, but the um, and then this other movie called *The Lover*. That was just like, did you get? Did you? Yeah, well, there are two: *The Lovers* and *The Lover*. Which the one? Lover. Spanish? No, um, Chinese. Oh, that one. Yeah, *The yeah. Lover*. Yeah, that Lovers one I, is the Spanish. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's so great. That just, uh, I, I would say that and *Ponette* were just such uh, emotional movies for me that I felt really connected to in my life as a dog. And Mean Streets, too. That was the first time I saw, like, this Catholic kind of all that uh, iconography. That was, not that it was around my parents were actually quite liberal, but high school with nuns and that whole. This first time I ever saw it documented in a contemporary setting. And, 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 then I, and I really saw myself in Charlie. It was interesting. That was, that was, that was the beginning. That became the obsession with Scorsese. <clears throat> Hi, it's not actually so much a question. I saw the film, and I think it's the best film I've seen in as long as I can remember. It's outstanding. It... Um, emotional and heartwarming and uplifting and meaningful and artistic and I just want to thank you all of you for doing this great film Thomas I thought you were magnificent oh, thank you um, the way as you've been bringing out the way the, the deeply artistic and poignant theme was portrayed with all the humor it was just it's what life is you know it's like that's that's what we're living is this tragic comedy and so anyway thank you it was magnificent well, thank, thank you. you question for alfonso i read the profile in variety recently and i thought it was a really great story about your path in the film industry and doing pa work and apprenticeships for other directors to get to where you are now and I, I thought it was good because I think with filmmaking being so accessible to kids nowadays that every kid expects to graduate and then their first film destroy Sundance and have instant I success. I thought that was going to happen. Yeah. So I, um, 
But I thought that was a really good story, and I was just wondering, like, I know there's no such thing as like a crummy job. Every job is, gives you experience. But if you were giving advice to a kid that was coming up through the ranks today, what are the best crummy jobs for a kid to have that will give them the best experience working their way through the ranks? I've had so many jobs. Uh, um, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I started, if he's the final, I mean, I started storyboarding, and that, that, that was uh, very valuable um, because you storyboard for the directors that are either seniors doing their senior theses or other directors that are more accomplished, and you get to see how they work. And, and sometimes um, I would sometimes on Casino, when I was, I was working for Scorsese, I would, I would do my own doodles on the size, a little script size of the day, and, and then compare how his approach was infinitely better, you know, obviously. <laughs> But you see how, you know, not that I would ever see the world through his lens because it's impossible, but it, it, it shows the kind of the discipline, how simple sometimes even his most design sequences can be and how when he knows when to move the camera and when not to move the camera. Uh, but I've done every, I love working for the art department. I've worked with them, some incredible designers, even just driving trucks, you know, uh, craft service. I, you know, the things I got something, I try to find, even when it was hard, the good in every job, honestly. I mean. It, I don't, not that I would advise everyone to, to, to work in every position until you finally be able to get in the director's chair, but um, it's a hard one because, uh, you know, through, through, through craft service for construction crews, I met Mel Bourne, who had designed some of my favorite Woody Allen movies, and it was his last movie, and you get great stories, and, and, and you get to ask him questions about Woody, but, or Lamette, which was the film that he was designing. But I, uh, one, one crummy job that you would recommend they do, well, hopefully no crummy jobs, if they're lucky, they get a film at Sundance right off the bat and avoid all that. Um, easy for me to say now that uh, there's a film that people are responding to, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I think if there's any crummy job, I think if you have the opportunity to work next to a director you admire, uh, then, and, and if you're able to, to, to do that and just quietly observe, observe and soak it in, because that person introduces you to, sets the bar quite high, but then introduces you to a world of people. Like Scorsese led to Pelleggi, led to Nora Ephron, all these people because of that world. And, uh, but I think if, um, and sometimes those jobs are not fun, and sometimes you're up for three days straight. Uh, but if you quietly soak it in and you, and you finish strong, then they lead to other relationships. Hi, how you doing? Um, I'm definitely a fan um, of the stop motion little scenes you know they 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 make big statements um was there was there a totally separate production staff for the stop motion and was that originally in the script uh, and, and was and you're an artist you said you did storyboard yeah. before so was that totally your idea uh the, the stop motion animation in fact the, the 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 moose chipmunk that you saw a clip of it today that is set up a few scenes earlier, so trust me, it is hysterical when you see it in context. But, yeah. but it's a, it, it was a, I didn't know what that was going to be. In fact, I thought it was going to be like Hanna-Barbera, Flintstones kind of animation. I really thought that was going to be, but we're going to do that in post-production anyway. So we just moved ahead, and then Ed and Nate, Ed Burst and Nate Marsh, I mentioned earlier, did a test with the claymation and, and started sending some, some stills of what the little moose would look like, and I loved it, and they did one the first version of that, the first pass at that, and I thought it was really charming, but it, it felt fresh, and it also felt handmade. And then that began, 
then that became its own little story arc where at the end the moose, the chipmunk just kind of sidesteps the moose and, but they have their own little relationship and their little story. Um, but that was, and then there's an earlier scene in the film that you haven't seen it, but I assume you haven't seen it, but in the film, early in the film, at the beginning there's a, this thing called the fortunate unfortunate man that was going to be live action with, with Thomas and Earl. We ran out of time. At some point, we had a little money left over. Maybe we'll come back in the winter and shoot it with our actors or shoot in LA or something. Or we just delete that section and just go right into the high school sequence. And then when I saw that stop motion, I said, well, I sent them the storyboards for that original sequence, and then they did that as well. So then stop motion just became a, a motif we, can't, we began to explore throughout uh, the film, and it became a character, an element. Hi, thank you for being here. Big fan of... Guys. Um, so my question was, I know that everyone kind of gets something out of this movie when they see it. And so as viewers, you know, they have a certain sense of what it is after they see it. Um, now actually being a part of it and being in the film, what did you get out of it since it's kind of like a comedy, but a, a little darker and, you know, so many different genres and emotions. I mean, what did you really get out of it from actually making it rather than just seeing it? Um, well, I, for me, it's just, uh, it was a whole new experience for me as an actor. I, I had never been asked to like go to those, these emotional depths before. And I, it's so rare that you find the opportunity to do that. And, um, and, and I feel like this movie opened me up emotionally. I'm not someone, I was never that emotional. I never cried when I watched the movie. And, and then whatever this movie did for me, it was like this turning this valve open and I like reached this new point of empathy that I hadn't really understood before. And it was just about kind of uh, understanding through someone else's story, really, through Greg and Rachel. I was like, I was living with, you know, inside Greg and um, it wasn't necessarily about recalling something that happened in my life, but more about just empathizing with these characters and and going through it with them. And, and I feel like I grew up with Greg and I realized, you know, a lot of parts, little pieces of myself in him. And, and anytime you see someone that's less than perfect, it, it, you know, that's, you know, especially someone like Greg, when I read the character, I, you, you recognize parts of that in yourself that you feel like you want to work through it and you want to figure out why you are that way. And, and it's really, it's an abstract thing to explain, but I just felt like I, I, grew, a lot, I grew a lot and it opened me up emotionally and now I cry when I watch movies. <laughs> Working with um, Alfonso was an experience I've never had with a director. He really makes it feel like this collaboration, like a team effort, like we were all in the same house and there's something going on downstairs and then upstairs he's shooting something else in the bedroom and like, come, come in, or, Thomas, you go. Okay, now Molly, come in. And you just, you can just make stuff up. And he's like, that's really good. And now try it like this. It just felt like the most creative experience yeah. I have ever had ever in my life. And, um, and then like I go put makeup on in the bathroom, we're all in the same house and we're talking and hanging out on the porch. And it just is like, I can't even describe how fantastic it was. It just, it just felt so special. I can't, I feel so lucky. I feel like Alfonso is like a force to be reckoned with. And we all feel that way. There, there's really nobody like him. He's like untouchable. And, um, and then getting to work with, Thomas and Olivia and RJ, we would just have fun. Like we shot at the hospital all night and we would lie on the beds during the break and just talk about relationships. Oh my and God, yes. <laughs> it was like five o'clock in the morning. We'd like sleep and then talk more about relationships. You're so good at getting information out of people. People really open up to oh, you. Oh, good. Yeah. 
I'm genuinely curious. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, so so yeah. So I just got just I just had such a joyful experience. And it, to me, it, it, other than I also grew up with Greg, um, like Thomas, for all the reasons I said earlier. But uh, it really br it gave me faith in the system again, brought back that feeling of, and I owe, that, owe, owe a lot of that to the producers who created an environment that inspired freedom where I, I felt safe then in order to make them feel safe and creative. And it just, it was very intimate, uh, minimal crew, no video village, no trailers, everything, everyone was living with each other. And I think you feel that, that uh, I think that love and that is quite tangible, I think. Um, and, and also that, to feel that kind of support, uh, all through until the release of the film is, is extraordinary and new for me. Thank you so much for sticking around. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you guys. Thank you for coming. <laughs>